Warning. Explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Scott David Chase. This is My Truth, Tell Me Yours. On this episode, I chatted with Joe Pace. And this is kind of a uh, uh, historic episode for this podcast. Joe is the first returning guest. I spoke with him in season one. Um, he was living in Washington State at the time. and um, But we spoke in Stratum, New Hampshire, at his parents' house. And um, he and his wife have moved back here uh, to New Hampshire since then. And Joe is running for executive council. Um, so... This was interesting because this was a mostly a political uh, chat where uh, I think that's that's definitely a first for this podcast as well. But um, it was a really, really impassioned uh, talk with Joe about how much the political process means to him. So it was great to talk with him. And uh, yeah, like all episodes on this season of This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours, we are sponsored by WeAreDappertized.com. They have a wide array of different styles, different fabrics, uh, neckties. Um, If you pick a tie or several ties out when you go to check out, if you put in promo code TRUTH, you'll get free shipping in the continental United States from wearedappertized.com. So uh, we thank them for sponsoring this episode. So now I hope you enjoy my chat, my return chat with Joe Pace. sentinel looking looking over at it. they do they check things out are those are those from the build a figure series no they're actually from the three and three quarter okay. ones uh which i have a whole bin of the three and three quarter guys over there yeah which i like i like those and then those guys came that's part of that set yeah size wise it makes sense those yeah are about like what, 15 to 18 inches exactly yeah even though this is you know going to be primarily a political chat. I just, I, I get the nerd stuff out of the way at the, at the beginning. Whatever. <laughs> um, it's like the old saying, these the ABCs of me. You know, there's no part of me that I don't own. Right, um, right. I can do, I'll go back and do football trivia yeah. for the last 50 years, or yeah. I'll talk Marvel Comics, or I'll talk yeah. Star Trek, or we'll talk about whatever. Yeah. It's, it's, I, um, there's a broad range. As we were talking before I started recording uh, about being on a show last night, and I, I met up with a friend for dinner before, and some music minutia that I was rattling off to her, and she was just like, how does your brain retain all that stuff? I was like, it's easy. I filter out all the useful stuff and just hang <laughs> on with that. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, I, I had a conversation with my wife, who's a, who's a doctor, mm-hmm. and um, she saved all of her RAM for medical school yeah and so I'll, I'll say oh this movie and I'll quote from a movie and she'll say I have no idea yeah so we have a running list of movies she needs to see yeah um, and uh, we're not even started on that list I've got yeah I, I got a buddy uh, at the new job so it's you know relatively new for him but he's a big big fan of movies but he's also he's you know 15 years younger than us so I was like have you seen this have you seen? he's like no no and it's not like no, it's just no. I haven't seen it, and I and I was like, "How come you haven't seen that?" And he's like, "Oh, 
because I was six when it came out, and it, you know, when we're talking about movies like Seven and The Fisher King and stuff like that, and so I was like, I was like, all right, I'm gonna make you a list of forty movies from the last forty years that you, you should have check to out. See, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of the um, campaign staff that you work with, whether uh, on my team or from the party, they're these kids. You know, I say kids. They're right. they're, they're uh, early to mid twenties. Yeah. And. We'll be doing something, and I'll I'll say a, a quote, and they'll have the blank look, and I'll say, "Well, that's right," but but that was from Ghostbusters, or that was from Caddyshack, or something. You know, what I mean, right. something that you think is going to really it's resonate with everybody. Ted pulls up our youth, right? Exactly. But then it, it occurs to me that that would be like somebody quoting from a um, Jerry Lewis movie, yeah, or one of Elvis Presley's, like, yeah, exactly, yeah, something like that. And you just go, "Oh, okay." Well, and that that's kind of I think a lot. I've spent a lot of time in the last couple of years thinking about aging and not even regretting, just like looking about, because a lot of my attitudes about stuff, I'm like, oh, this is when, when I was 18 and I encountered someone in their forties, which seemed ancient at the time. And I was like, oh, they're just a jaded old man. And I'm like, oh no, it's what, it's what the cumulative experience <laughs> does piano, to you. Yeah. And it's funny, too, because, like, again, a friend I was hanging out with last night, we were talking about not feeling old, and I was just like, I feel like like I'm just getting started. Uh, I'm like, I'm just starting to have stuff figured out. All right, let's, let, let's go. Let's, yeah. let's make stuff well, Let me know when now. you get it figured out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd be delighted to hear what the answer is. <laughs> I mean, first of all, you're not allowed to feel old because you're two years younger than I am. Right, um, right. So that's not permitted. Um, but... I think it's just at a certain point the piano starts to get heavy, yeah. and and you you um, physically you know you're you're not as um, robust as you might have been right. uh, before, and just you know stuff starts to pile up whether it's jobs or moves or relationships or children or, or whatever else. Uh, it's like a computer that starts to have a lot of programs that have run on it. It mm-hmm. just starts to slow down and doesn't boot up as fast and everything else. Yeah, um, and so. I think we get to this point in our lives where we need to uh, filter out the programs we don't use anymore. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I worry about that because that might be, you know, what I've noticed is I used to know sort of, I could do lineups of every team in baseball or all the, you know, quarterbacks and running backs and yeah. football up until like 2002. Yeah. And if it's happened really since then, it's spotty and spotty, and then it starts to fill a lot. But right now, like, okay, I know who the Red Sox are, but, like, beyond that, I couldn't tell you who's on the Tigers or the Diamondbacks. Sure, the sure. And I could still tell you who was on the Tigers in 1987 better right. than I could from who was this year. Right. Um, and so after a while, you just start reallocating that that, that resource in your, in your brain, and uh, it's what? tough. I, I also think, you know, stuff imprints on our DNA in a different way as we age too where I mean because I'm assuming you you got into sports at a young age and that was something that you know drove you um and so your interest was picked and so that stuff you started retaining that as a young age where not that it's not necessarily an interest to you but you know the Red Sox are specifically interest to you but you know when you were six or seven or eight you probably had five things that you really liked and and baseball was one of them where now there's, you know, endless number of things that you're interested in, yeah. and that's just a smaller sliver of the pie. So the stuff that actually gets 
Captain, you know, the pie is still the same size. It's just there's more, there's more pieces of it. Yeah, so. I, I think too. I mean, there's there's a lot to unpack when it starts talking about uh, what we remember and what we yeah. retain and what matters to us. Um, I can remember vividly being 18, graduating from high school and starting college, and I wanted to know everything. Mm-hmm. And I say that, and it sounds like no, I I wanted to know everything. I right. wanted to read every book. I wanted to understand everything, and. So I started just, you know, I, I'd go to my classes at UNH, and I also had this reading list a mile long. And as time went on, I discovered that that just wasn't going to happen. Right. And um, you can read widely and well, and still people will come up and say, oh, what do you know about this topic? And you'd be like, I've never even come anywhere close to that. Right. Uh, and when you've been involved in, in public life, um, it's interesting because I think people have these expectations of, of elected officials that they're... Um, encyclopedic in their knowledge of everything. And mm-hmm. part of that are these public uh, personas that we see, whether it's, um, you know, Barack Obama or, um, you know, any, any other politician that stands up and, and speaks on an issue, well, they didn't all come off the top of their head. I mean, they've right. been prepped on that, okay? Or you go into a meeting and you just read the briefing book on it, so of course you're ready for that meeting. But it creates this illusion of... And I think, you know, we're all following the spell of the West Wing and shows like that where our superheroes walk right. into the room and they're like, oh, well, that compares to this or the, the, here are these numbers on that. And, right. And, and, and it's sort of a fool's gold to think that that's how it really is. Sure. Although, and, and again, it's a very, you know, idealized Aaron Sorkin world that that right. show takes place in. But that was the first time for me, someone who's never been super interested in politics but that gave me kind of a glimpse behind how how it works that there is a whole group of people that that you know help the president or or any politician run their campaign and whatnot and obviously that's not a hyper realistic version say, of it. Let's let's say we wish that's how it would work. Right. I understand what you're saying. Yeah, that but that was the first yeah. time where I really was just like, oh okay, so there's you know it isn't just, even though, you know, President Bartlett is sort of the, the Superman of, yeah. of you know, you know, the presidents, uh, he did have a staff that were all, you know. You mean having like a, a Nobel Prize in economics might be something we'd look for in a president? Right, right. Or just being <laughs> able to form complete sentences. I don't know what you're talking yeah. about. <laughs> so, I mean, being someone who's been in the public life before and is is now in the public life again like what like what what i guess what, what drew you to that i mean you always for those listening who've never heard this podcast before joe and i grew up together we've known each other 30 years now. i think that's right yeah, yeah. uh so I, I mean you've always been a, a a pretty outgoing person or at least given that appearance of uh, outgoing person but what made you interested in politics yeah, I mean, I think early on, I always loved history. I always loved, um, you know, reading about and learning about American history and yeah. more broadly, you know, Greek and Roman and, and other forms of history. And I was always drawn to sort of what they used to call the great man theory of history, right? I mean, yeah. there are these individuals who, by dint of their um, persona or their effort or their intellect, were able to affect the events around them. And you talked about imprinting at an early age. Um, that was something that, that stayed with me for a long time, well past the time I should have moved on from it and realized that history is a, a collection of vectors that cause things to happen and um, that timing and, and a lot of other things go into who's 
in whatever seat when things happen. But I, I from a very early on time, um, felt compelled to uh, to be of service to my community. Sorry. Continue. Okay. No, we just. I always have this panic early on. <laughs> it was at exactly ten minutes. Okay. And so there was a one, and then three zeros, and I was like, "Did I not hit record?" Um, which has never actually happened. Uh, and I'm also not going to cut this out of the, you know, so people can know, see the difference between professionalism and and not. Uh, but I've had a couple technical things where like things have hit this and whatnot. Obviously, we're in a very controlled environment. Uh, but I was just, I always get this panic because I've lost, in three years doing this, I've lost three podcasts. Okay. You know, anyway. Well, whenever I see, whenever I see uh, the... Uh, the counterpart of, you know, with the reporter reach right. for something and it looks like something isn't working. Just wait a minute and see how this is going to pan out. Yeah, yeah. I also appreciate referring to this as a controlled environment. That's just because the kids are at school. Sure. Um, that's the only time this is a controlled environment. <laughs> um, but to uh, sort of pick up that thread of, of what drew me to, to public life was I'm a, I'm a believer that um, we all have a responsibility to the community that we're a part of. Yeah. And we all try to figure out the ways that we can be of service to that community. And, and there's a lot of different ways to do that. You know, there's um, soldiers and firefighters, there's nurses and teachers, there's just people who work hard and pay their taxes and raise their kids and you know make the whole thing go. And um, so I don't think there's just one model for being of service. Um, but for me, very early on, I always felt compelled to do everything I could to make other people's lives better, make other people's lives easier, um, and and try to move the ball forward for. The civilization that we're trying to have, mm. and and early on that took the part of um, you know being involved in, in student government in high school, yeah, uh, and then again in, in college, and um, I think it's I think it's also it's interesting, and, and this is sort of fairly topical. I think there's this desire on the part of public figures and those around them to craft these narratives that are these. Spotless, shining narratives. Right. And I'm thinking about that because I think about the Kavanaugh hearings, and I think about um, there's this narrative of the choir boy, the, the virgin when he met his wife, and like they try to create this persona of this bulletproof, I've always been awesome. Right. And I think you and I have known each other too long to pretend that we've always, I'm not awesome now. How sure. How can I pretend I've always been right. awesome? And right. So, like, you know, honestly, there was also parts of me when I was younger that was drawn to to leadership and felt that I had something to give and felt that um, it would be really cool to, to be in charge and make decisions and all that kind of thing. And so I think that I was certainly, the, the nature of my personality was drawn to some of that. Um, and as I matured, fortunately, at least I think, that really increasingly took a, a backseat to seeing how much there is to do. Yeah. Okay? Seeing how... Really, particularly when we talk about New Hampshire, uh, it is just absolutely there's nowhere else I'd ever want to be to, to, to work, to, to live, to raise a family, to retire. But that there's just a lot to do mm-hmm. uh, that not everybody shares in that prosperity. Right. And um, I think that we've had a, a real problem over the last 30 years where there's been this winner's circle that's had a line drawn around it. Yeah. And those making choices and decisions at the highest levels of political power have said, if you're inside the circle, we're going to make the rules for you. Yeah. 
And everybody who's not in this circle that's working toward it, that's trying to climb and clamber towards any kind of next rung on the socioeconomic ladder, well, boy, you're just out of luck. Right. And that just feels wrong to me. I mean, you and I didn't grow up with extreme means. Right. Um, you know, I, I'm not poor by any stretch of the imagination, right. but, you know, my, my dad was a police officer. We, you know, grew up in... Uh, there was food on the table and clothes in the in the washing machine and everything right. else. We didn't know what we didn't have necessarily, but there were opportunities. Mm-hmm. And I feel very strongly that in the last few decades, those opportunities have gotten fewer and fewer for working class and middle class. For kids. sure. And when we um, when we don't invest in education and we don't do everything we can to get healthcare access for people, uh, it gets. The stairways get get steeper when you're trying to to climb, whether it's out of poverty or out of the middle class into the you know the next run mm-hmm. up. And uh, that dream of boy, anybody can do it uh, has gotten a lot harder. And so as as I've grown from high school through college and then working on the on the board of selectmen here in Exeter, um, I've really been able to notice how stacked the deck can be against people that aren't part of the decision-making process. Mm-hmm. And part of what drives me is to do everything that I can do now that I've got, if not a seat at the table, I'm at least in the room. Sure. Uh, to realize that, yeah, I made I made it, whatever that means, right? But I mean, like, you know, we we've we've gotten this this far. My responsibility is to turn around and help the, the people that are still trying to. Yeah. to climb that yeah. rather than throw the ladder down behind you and say, I got mine. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think that's the way that the system is supposed to work. So that's a long answer to your question, um, which is to say that the reasons for wanting to be involved in public life have, have evolved mm-hmm. over time. And, and they started out in some fairly egocentric places, uh, as a lot of things do when we're 12 years old or sure. 15 years old. Sure. Um, but the, the, the key is to grow from there. Mm-hmm. And, and I like to think that um, through intellectual curiosity, the work of a lot of teachers and coaches over the years and, and friends and, and other people that I've known, um, there's a lot of the 12-year-old in me still. I mean, look around the room, right? I mean, right. I've got comic books and you know, figures of, of the Enterprise. And so, I mean, there's still a lot of the little boy there. Um, but I like to think that the other aspects of the of the younger boy, the um, you know the the desire, looking at politics as some pathway to authority or or being able to influence events just for that purpose, mm. has really kind of burned away over time. Yeah, because look, I've stood up in front of the crowd and I've you know been able to sign this paper that affects people's lives, and power sucks. It really does. Like I mean, it, just in and of itself. Mm-hmm. There's there's no value to it. Right. It's about who you're there to try to help. Mm-hmm. And I, I really believe very, very firmly that over the last 30 or 40 years, um, just there's so much to do and we've got to grow to meet that. Yeah. And what originally led me to be interested in, in politics as a sort of um, exercise uh, has become much more concrete. And, um, I guess the simplest way to put it was I got interested in it for me, Mm -hmm. but I'm not in it for me anymore. Um, and I try to keep that in mind as much as possible. And, um, 
it's hard. And I'm talking, like, you know, by all means, step in whenever you want no, 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 if no. I'm rambling. But, but I, I, it's interesting because I love the question, right? I love the question of yeah. why. Why are you doing it? And well, it's, it's a question that, I mean, because I, I think, you know, in 2018, certainly given the nation's political climate, I think there's a lot of us who are like, what drives this person, you know, a, any politician. And I think there's a general distrust in the nation of politics. I mean, I know plenty of people who just throw out the pet, you know, they're all liars, they're all thieves. And, you know, you know, to echo what you were saying before, you know, we've, we've known each other a long time. We've, you know, uh, you know, I'm sure we both have done stuff that's not awesome, but the important thing is, you know, striving to be a better person all the time, but also you are someone I've known for a long time and not someone who I would describe in any of those ways that most people, uh, describe, you know, the blanket statement of politicians. So I'm, I'm all, you know, I'm genuinely curious what got you, not, not even just what got you into it, but what's keeping you in it now, which is, you know, you answered. And I'll add to this. It's interesting because I get frustrated with, oh, they're all crooks. And, and not because it's not true. I get frustrated with it because it's true enough that people feel that they're justified in saying that. Right. And it is true enough. There certainly are plenty, particularly nationally. But I will tell you this. Ain't nobody in New Hampshire politics getting rich off it. Right. Okay. Unless they're step into the next level and I don't know. But like, um, you know, we have our, our legislators who make $100 a year here in New Hampshire. I know a lot of them and it's practically a volunteer gig. Right. Um, and so they're not in it for the money. Mm-hmm. Um, now they could be into it for other nefarious purposes uh, and there certainly are some who are in it to either um, deregulate a business they're involved in. I mean, you know, so that there, are, there are certainly things like that. But what frustrates me the most is that we become a self-fulfilling prophecy that if a child tells a lie, we say, oh, you'd make a great politician. We, we practically beg to have these kinds of, of characteristics in our representatives. Mm. Um, and if somebody's a, uh, a good kid and they, they work hard and they're smart and they're curious and they're compassionate and they're interested in justice, and they say, I want to get involved in the political process, we tell them not to do it. Yeah. But if a kid is venal and is a liar and it, you know, they say, oh, yeah, you ought to go into politics. And it's just it, it, we get what we ask for mm-hmm. in a lot of we don't demand better mm-hmm. um, when when we're confronted with the real deal versus the slick package. We buy the slick package. Right. And over and over and over again, it's like we're going into the convenience store and we could get the banana or we could get the gummy worms. Yeah. We're buying the gummy worms every single time. Yeah. And then don't you know? understand and then we, our stomach is right? killing us. Yeah, yeah. And then the doctor says you got to do it. You know, so it. I would say that um, I get I get deeply frustrated by a lot of aspects of our political process, and yeah, there's way too much money in it, and the system is broken in a lot of ways. But it's the only system we have, and we're not going to be throwing it out anytime soon. So we got to get under the hood and do everything we can to fix it. And I, I don't want to get too granular. I don't want to bore your listeners who are used to hearing about you know deep tracks off albums or, or, right. or whatever else. But we have two huge issues in, in the country right now. And if I were Thanos and could snap my fingers, then that's, that's what, these are what I would fix. And one of those is gerrymandering, which, um, where we have these weird districts where it's you know, connected by one little 
town, and yep. you know, they, and we wanted to get all the all the, the Democrats into a tightly packed area so that there are three conservative areas around it or whatever yep. else. And so what's happened is over the last decades, we now have more than ninety percent of congressional seats are safe seats for one party or the other in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, so. If you're in Congress, the likelihood, now this is the, the House and not the Senate, but if you're in Congress, the likelihood is that um, you're in a safe Republican district or a safe Democratic district. And so if you're in a safe Republican district, your challenge isn't going to come from the general election against someone from the other party. Mm-hmm. It's going to come from your own party in a primary where they're even more conservative than you are. Right. And so what ends up happening in these safe seats is we see increasing polarization because the trend is away from way. the middle, right. way more extreme either way. Because here's an example. If you've got a moderate Republican in coal country in Pennsylvania, and he's got a 75% NRA rating, he's going to get challenged in the next primary by somebody with a 100% NRA rating, and he's going to lose that primary. Mm-hmm. Among other things, the more extreme your positions are, the easier it is to get money. So you take the more extreme, you, you take positions to the right or to the left, it attracts that primary electorate in that, um, in that safe district, and then that's how, you, that's how you get money. And so what ends up happening is formerly moderate uh, Congress people, they move to the right or to the left so that they don't lose their job. Mm-hmm. Or they get voted out and somebody more extreme comes right. in. So uh, it's the combination of gerrymandering and the big money that comes in that we're more polarized than we've ever been before, civil war included. We have more distance between right and left in this country. And the parties line up more cogently around right or left than they ever had. It used to be you'd have liberal Republicans, conservative Democrats. That's all sussed itself out after the, after the civil rights movement and, and everything else, the Southern strategy and Nixon and everything else. That has sussed itself out where now you've got a liberal Democratic Party and a conservative, uh, Repo- I'm sorry, a conservative Republican Party and a liberal Democratic Party. Although I know many of my liberal friends would say that that liberal Democratic Party is, you know, kind of where the Republicans were sure. 25 years ago. Sure. So, but, but by and large, the modern definitions of right and left, even though that's moved, if the old 50-yard line was the 50, the new 50-yard line is the old 30-yard line on the right side. Right. But, but you do tend to have more distance and less, um, less reason for compromise. When you have um, someone who tries to reach out and, and work with the other side, they get primaried because they're being too friendly to the enemy or whatever else it is. Right. And so if I could fix anything, it would be those two things. Um, we'd go to um, nonpartisan districts that make sense and public financing of elections. And mm. if you did those two things, I, I, don't, I think you wouldn't need term limits. I think that there'd be a lot of other stuff that would get fixed yeah. with those two things. Um. And I'm just I'm looking at this from my own view of particularly local politics historically. So you're you're running in an election that is it's it's a midterm election. It's you know there's not it's not accompanied by a, a presidential right. race. And I know plenty of people who just I mean I know plenty of people who don't vote at all. Right. Um, We're going to talk to those people. Yeah. <laughs> But I also know plenty of people who only vote every four years. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it, it, uh, the the way the the cynic in me at this point looks at it is if you're only voting every four years, if your only concern is the the highest levels of government, it's already too late. Like because 
me having any sort of open dialogue or any effect with the, you know, the largest government in the country is slim to none. Whereas, uh, on the local level, obviously I'm going to be able to have, um, someone who understands where I live, what my actual concerns are. But so, you know, what would you say to someone like that who, who just doesn't, doesn't vote? Yeah. I think there's two responses to that. One of, and one of it is from the self-serving perspective that says, you know, if you only go to the doctor when you have a heart attack, you're good. Chances are you're going to have more heart attacks. Okay. Yeah. Whereas if you go and get your regular checkups and you're, you know, going to the doctor and getting preventive care and you're, you know, doing all of, and doing that maintenance work, that the chances of an emergency are less. Um, that's an imperfect analogy. But um, what I would also say is those people who don't vote. Uh, or vote infrequently, that's partially their fault, but it's also in large part the fault of, of all of us that are involved in the, in the political system. Mm-hmm. There has to be um, something to vote for. Uh, I think when we, we get down to the level of just saying, no, 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 you just have to vote, you just have to vote. It's like if somebody came to me and said, you really need to vote in the American Idol or something, I'm like, I don't know anything about it. I don't really care about it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't affect my life one way or the other, and I think it's all rigged anyway. No, thank you. Like, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really do anything for me. So yeah. I, I think by browbeating people and saying, you don't vote, you're part of the problem, I, I, don't think is, I don't think is the answer. I think the answer is to find a way that's compelling to reach people and demonstrate for them why it's important to vote in local and state elections mm-hmm. um, and to more frequently exercise. Shaming, I'm not, I, it doesn't work with my kids. It, you know what I mean? Like, it, it's... If I if you give you a good reason to do it, you're more likely to do it, and it comes to your own volition versus you know. Absolutely, I've side. never wanted to do anything because someone shamed me. <laughs> but yeah. if I see someone who's living a life that they seem to be happy and content, my natural instinct is, "Ooh, I'd like that too." How are they achieving that? And let me see if I can learn something from them and apply that to my own life. Where, you know, whereas if someone's like, you should do X, Y, and Z with your life. I'm like, well, screw you. I, you know, don't tell me how to live my life. Right. I, I have no desire to do it. Right. You know? And people have been burned. Um, it, it's a lot like, I think a lot, um, you know, we've all had bad relationships mm-hmm. and some of us are able to move on and have healthy relationships afterwards, but some of us write off the whole exercise, right? I mean, some of us say, that's it. I've, I've been burned. I've had my right. heart broken. I'm done. You know, and it's one of those things that if your, you know, boyfriend keeps cheating on you, are you going to keep going back to the well? And, and you know, uh, I think people feel burned by a political process where someone, Bill Clinton stands up and, and inspires people and then turns out to have philandering problems or, mm-hmm. um, you know, and there's any number of examples around that where they, these, you know, these guys have feet of clay um, and, or so many people that were excited about Bernie Sanders and they felt that the, you know, the democratic party screwed him out of the nomination. And so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not going to get involved in that. And so I'm, you know, I don't, I'm not interested in two party politics. Um, so I think that there's a a large number of people who feel that if the system is just going to do what it does and it doesn't matter what I do, or they've believed before strongly been burned by it and aren't interested in having their heart broken again. And so I think that the answer to that is, and this is going to sound counterintuitive coming from a candidate, is not to fixate on candidates. 
is not to look for a savior. It's not to look for the the man or woman in the the, the tights and, and cape to come down and save the day because that's not how it works. Um, it's we all want the the easy answer. We all want the pill that's going to help us with our blood pressure. Right. We don't want to exercise every day and eat right. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, the answer is to exercise every day and eat right. Right. And the answer is to start paying attention to city and town and county and municipal elections and to uh, be involved and, and to dial in and to pay attention and to read the paper and that's that's hard work and so there's this this tug and t- there's this push and pull right where you say ah I want to be involved and I, I want I want to have people I can trust but can't I just get someone who's going to fix it it's like politicians aren't plumbers man they're not going to come in and fix your pipes and go away they're there every day they're making decisions every day and they're doing it in large numbers there's um, if you live in, in Exeter, you've got five people on your board of selectmen, and then you've got another seven on your planning board, another six on your zoning board, and then you've got a, a school board that's got all these people on it. In the Rockingham County, your sheriff is elected, and your register of deeds and probate, and your treasurer is elected, and you've got a three-member county commission. You know I mean, so like you've got 400 members of your House of Representatives. You've mm. got 24 state senators, and two senators, a congressperson, a governor, and then, you know what I mean? It's like, so people, I understand getting bewildered. Okay, uh, and and wanting to spend their bandwidth on being with their families or, or reading or, or right. whatever else, so it's it's hard. But also, the more you do it, the easier it actually gets. Because I'm a believer that it's like someone doesn't want to run, and by this I mean go for a run, like go jog, right? Because it's hard, and it is hard. The first time's hard. It gets easier and it gets easier and it gets easier. And so once you start to to try to dial back in and pick a level that makes sense to you and. The air in the room all gets sucked out by what's going on nationally. Uh, but stuff, I'm telling you, at the state level and at the local level is more important. Yeah. It is more important, and I'll tell you why. And this is this is a, kind of one of these situations where we started here and we're going to move over somewhere else in the conversation. But um, what's been happening for the last 30, 35 years is the federal government has been increasingly pushing stuff down on the states. And here in New Hampshire, the state government has been pushing stuff down to the local level. Yeah. Uh, and I'll give you some examples of that. Um, one is that um, the state of New Hampshire used to provide uh, building aid to communities for building new schools or renovating their schools. They don't do that anymore. It's more expensive now to build a new school in a town in New Hampshire than it used to be because the state aid isn't there anymore. Yeah. Um, Another example is the, the state used to work with municipalities on helping to fund um, the pensions for public workers, for police, fire, you know, public works teachers. Um, they walked away from that responsibility. It's now a town responsibility. Mm. So what happens is when we don't pay attention to who we're sending to Concord, they make decisions that push financial burdens back down to the local level. And what happens? Your property taxes go up. And everybody in New Hampshire knows Property taxes is the biggest tax that we pay. And so every time we vote saying, I don't want an income tax or, or, a, or a property tax, I'm sorry, we don't want an income or a sales tax, and so I'm going to send people to Concord that aren't going to do that. Right. They make decisions there that raise your property taxes. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, I, I get tired, first of all, with this, um, this mantra that says that this party raises taxes and this party doesn't because that's a load. Okay. Um, both parties are going to tax you. Both parties are going to spend that money. It's a question of your values and your principles and how you want that money to be spent. Right. It's going to be taxed regardless. If, they, if you send people to, to Concord who promise not to do an income or a sales tax, they'll do that. 
Yeah. But they're gonna they're going to to make decisions in certain ways that increase your local property taxes. You're not avoiding tax effect. What you're avoiding is the responsible and and broad use of that money in ways that benefit everybody. Yeah. Um, I used to I used to laugh at the um, you know, tax and spend liberal and I call them the tax and keep conservatives. Um, and so I, I think if we start to keep our eye on the ball a little bit and pay attention to the fact that here in New Hampshire. We, we live sometimes, I think, in a bubble um, here in New Hampshire and don't realize just how, uh, how many decisions are being made in Concord that affect us mm. every day. Um, the, uh, the office that I'm running for, if you don't mind, my, my no, no, no. there specifically, because um, I guarantee that there are a large percentage, probably a majority of listeners have never heard of it. Well, that's um, the thing. When you first threw it out to me, however long ago it was that this is what you were eyeing for. I was like, oh, cool. That's, you know, sounds great. And in the back of my mind, I was like, the heck is executive council? Yeah, I mean, executive council is um, it's uniquely New Hampshire appendage. It's, it's um, part of the executive branch. It's a co-equal part of the executive branch with the governor. It's essentially if the governor is the CEO, the executive council is the board of directors. Okay. So any money that the governor wants to, to spend... Any, uh, and that's contracts, vendor agreements. Think about things like infrastructure spending, um, you know, uh, healthcare clinics, uh, Planned Parenthood contracts. All of that has to be approved by the five member council. And then any appointments, um, whether that's, uh, you know, senior administra- administration officials, commissioner of education, commissioner of labor, um, or judges have to be confirmed by this council. And I, I I think it's especially important to note that what we're seeing in Washington right now, we're seeing this generational rightward lurch on the Supreme Court. Whether or not Kavanaugh goes through, they're going to find that seat is going to wind up being more conservative than it was when Kennedy was there. Sure. And so what they're going to do is this newly conservative Supreme Court is not going to declare that abortion is illegal. It's not going to um, you know, declare that, that civil rights are, are no longer something we enforce. It's going to increasingly push those decisions down onto the states. It's going to say that's a state's rights issue. That's a state's, whether it's you know, covering contraceptives or, or you know, um, access to, to safe and legal abortion. Those are state-level decisions. Well, the executive council confirms the governor's appointments to the state bench. Okay. So if your United States senator matters to you because of the Supreme Court and that confirmation authority that we're seeing on display, then your executive counselor should certainly matter to you because we confirm those judicial appointments and the state Supreme Court and the state judiciary is going to be much more powerful than it used to be with these decisions that are getting pushed down to the state level. Um, and a lot of decisions around privacy, around rights, are going to be decided at state-level Supreme Courts over the next 25 years. Hmm. Um, so, and there's, I mean, look, there's a lot of other places that, that this intersects. Um, and for me, I'm not happy with, we currently have, um, uh, of the five members of the Executive Council, three of them are Republicans. And, you know, I'm going to make, I'm going to irritate some of my friends on the left here. Being a Republican doesn't automatically make you a bad person. Sure, uh, there are you know some absolutely wonderful, uh, public spirited, smart, thoughtful, compassionate uh, conservatives and Republicans out there. 
but the current constitution of the executive council is one that is um, has rubber stamped things that Governor Sununu wants, and has made some decisions that that bother me. And um, to get a tiny bit into the weeds, first and foremost, they appointed they confirmed the appointment of Frank Adelblut as commissioner of education. Um, and this is a this is a gentleman who um, homeschooled all eight of his kids who um, has never been a teacher, a principal, or a superintendent, or a board member, or a PTA member, and has been the point of the spear on the voucher program that was proposed for the state of New Hampshire. And the voucher program is something that says we're going to take money out of public schools and give it to people to take their kids to private school or to homeschool them. Hmm. So you essentially get a scholarship of $4,000 for your child to then take and send them to, to private school or to homeschool them. And that money comes right out of the treasury of the public schools. Hmm. Um, and there's a lot of problems with that. It's a failed public policy. It doesn't improve outcomes, and it raises taxes. Hmm. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln. Right. You know, um, so that, that's one where I look at this executive council as one that failed in their responsibility of properly vetting and confirming somebody who's uh, a powerful administration official here in New Hampshire. Um, and that was probably the decision and the vote by the current executive counselor that I'm running against that really drew my focus to, to this race and to thinking that, boy, we could do a better job than what yeah. we have there now. Hmm. Um, so the, the, the other four executive counselors, yeah. uh, how long have they, how long the, have they been? Yeah. I mean, they're two year terms. Everything is a two year okay. term. Um, and it's it's a it's a moving, uh, you know, uh, a lot of moving pieces to it. Um, some of them some of them have been in for a little while. Um, they don't have a lot of long tenured people in there right now, just because of the the way things have gone. I think one of the longest tenured ones was Chris Pappas, who just mm-hmm. uh, stepped away from his seat to run for Congress. And um, so there's a race on for that seat up in the Manchester area. Mm-hmm. Um, each of the districts, there's five districts and they're geographic. So the one that I'm running in is essentially Rockingham County, plus okay. or minus. Um, so it's Portsmouth, Newcastle, out to um, Wyndham, Derry, Salem, and then yeah. Raymond down to, to Rye and Seabrook. Okay. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting to, to look at the makeup of it. There have been some really phenomenal executive counselors in the past. Uh, Ray Burton was a Republican mentor of mine from the North Country. Ruth Griffin from, from this part of the state, mm-hmm. um, and who was, again, was a Republican, but did a really, really good job representing the people of her district. So uh, it used to be that party didn't matter as much in the executive council. It's really only over the last 10 or 15 years that it's become as partisan as everything else. Yeah, And um, so we're, we're seeing it now as you know, governor and council used to be considered sort of an entity. Mm-hmm. And now it's increasingly being uh, a check on the governor's power. Yeah. Which is sort of what it was originally intended to be. It goes back to colonial times when there was a, a royal governor appointed by the crown. And then the people of New Hampshire were like, no, no, no hold on. Let's, right. let's have a check on that. Um, the Pollyanna story says they wanted to have a check on executive power. So these five leading, you know, citizens formed this council. Really what they didn't want was the crown appointed governor giving away patronage jobs that they didn't have their hands on. Mm. You know, the, the, the collector of the Port of Portsmouth and, you know, the, the, the postmasters and stuff like that. They wanted right. to have a piece of that pie. <laughs> yeah, so, sure. so it goes back to that. But I, I know this is a very different podcast for you than usual. 
That's and, okay. And I know that it's, you know, and it'll be interesting for, for you and for your listeners, should there be any, sure. about, um, you know, how does this intersect with creativity? How does this intersect with, um, you know, finding creative artistic truths? Um, yeah. and, um, it's, it's interesting. I, mean, I, I, I look at creativity as, um, having a lot of different ways that it enters the world. Yeah. And you're, you're a painter and I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are two very different exercises. Sure. Um, they're both acts of creativity, both acts of, uh, the triumph of, of hope over experience that what we create is going to be worthwhile, but it's because we have something to say. Mm. And for me, a lot of the purpose that, that I have in, in, in running this race is because I have something to say. And also there are a lot of people who have something to say, who feel like they don't have anybody saying it with them or for them. Yeah. And so when I sit down at the computer and I write a novel it's my voice and it's just, you know, coming mm. through mine. When I'm campaigning, when I'm on the trail and I'm talking to groups and I'm talking to people at the door or whatever else, it's my voice, but it's also the voices of people that I've, I've been talking to um, over the last year and years before that who say, concrete's not working for me. Um, the decisions being made aren't helping and are actually hurting mm. my family. Um, it's harder for me to make ends meet because of the, the actions that are going on by our government. And so I feel a tremendous sense of responsibility to make help those voices be heard. And so it's, it, it's a collaborative process with a lot of co-collaborators, yeah. some of whom don't even know that they're on the project. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so it feels in some ways like... Uh, I imagine, because I've never been on the set of a movie or involved in anything like that, but when you fear the director of a film, mm-hmm. it's your vision, but it's really a lot of people that oh, are involved sure. in making for that sure. happen. And um, I just... And it feels like there's obviously some very real stakes involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's... That was an enormously ham-fisted way to try to, you know take the, the broader theme of your podcast and make it work for a political discussion. Well, it's, it, it, it's funny because this is, this is a first for this podcast as far as having a politician, but also you're my first repeat guest. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, for those listening, uh, Joe and I talked about a year and a half ago on the first season of it. Uh, we were at, we're at your parents' house, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and you were living in Maryland at the time? No, we were in Washington at the time. I thought you hadn't left for Washington yet. Maybe I was wrong. No, I think we were in Washington at the time because we were out there for four years. Okay, yes, you definitely were. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, which is the last place that I saw you before today was, yeah, on my trip last year, traveling around the country. And it was funny because I almost was tempted to, want to sit down and have have a chat then but i also I, like i said this is the first time i've done a repeat uh yeah. conversation with someone it's funny. probably the last no no no. <laughs> i actually have a list of I, I have a list of well and and you know like i said before there um i think it was before we were recording there there there's there's only a handful of ones where i of the conversations where i was kind of grasping trying to 
keep the conversation going. Usually, I certainly don't have any uh, need much provocation to just keep talking for hours and hours. And luckily, a lot of the people that I know in various parts of my life are the same way. Um, but the, the whole the whole point of this podcast, why I started doing it, was I really enjoy the face-to-face, one-on-one conversation. And it's not really an interview. Like, that doesn't, like, it's easy to get information from people, uh, but it's the it's the one-on-one face-to-face right. thing. So that's the most important thing to me. I sort of framed it from the beginning with talking to artists, creators, and stuff, because that's co- kind of, those are my people. But I know plenty of people in all different walks of life. And, and at this point, I actually, a lot of times, will seek out someone who I'm like, this is someone I've known for a long time, but I don't really know, you know, like like their day-to-day thing is so foreign to me. Let, let me talk to them about yeah. that. Do you know what I mean? So um, because I'm one of those people that does oftentimes shy away from politics, and I and, and, and I I look at politics the way I kind of look at jazz, and I'm like, I know it has value, and but it's there's so much to it, and I don't even know where to start sometimes. And it yeah. just doesn't speak to you, right? Um, I think I, I certainly uh, can appreciate that. Um, I I just I don't know why anybody would vote or be involved in the political process if they feel that that it's not going to help them. Mm-hmm. And we have too much to do. We have too much as individuals in our own lives to, to, to chew up all that bandwidth. And to then step outside of that and go and put our hearts and our time and our money on the line for something that is just going to break our heart in the end, it was a word for doing that over and over and over again, right? I mean, so mm-hmm. it, it's... Um, I get it. I get people's frustration, and I also, I get their hunger and their eagerness for something different and that they can believe in. And I said it earlier on. I think it's it's misguided when that takes into the form of hero worship, and we latch on to these would be saviors, and we want them to come down and save the day, because that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. And if there's anything we can have faith in, it's in ourselves and. And when we hear a message and we hear um, a vision that we can believe in, that's what um, that's what moves me. Is um, when I read something or hear something and I say, "Yeah, that that could really um, that could really have an impact on people's lives." And, and sometimes it's the little things. It really is mm-hmm. um, because here's the, here's the dirty little secret. Out of all of it, I did nine years in municipal government. I've, I've seen the. The sausage get made plenty of times in my yeah. life. The dirty little secret is this. It's not sitting at the table and saying, I want to do the right or the wrong thing. Um, and there it is. I can pick black or I can pick white. Right. I can count on one hand of the days the choice has been picking black or picking white. It is how gray is it and who is going to get hurt by the decision that I'm about. Because somebody's going to. Right. Governing is choosing. It is looking at... Uh, a, a you know, number of options and saying, okay, what's the one that's going to either do the least harm or what's the one that's going to do the most good? Sure. And for instance, if we have universal health care and everybody pays a little bit more on their payroll taxes so that everybody has health care, 
well, you could raise your hand and say, I, my healthcare is fine. Why should I pay a little bit more? And so I'd get hurt by that. Mm. But the number of people who would benefit exponentially sure. from it makes it worth a little bit of that pain. Mm-hmm. And there are, listen, if something could be painless and universally good, it would have been done by now. So I, I don't buy into the if only. Anybody that tells you the answer is simple is selling you something. And it's probably not going to work once they tell it to you. Right. Um, and you know, you know this as well as anyone. The answer is, is to just keep getting up every day and putting in the work. Mm-hmm. And you know that's it. You how many times have you worked a canvas and then at the end of it gone, oh man, yeah, this thing didn't work at all. Yeah, <laughs> you know. But and, and I've you know I I had a I had uh, going off that point I had a conversation with a friend a couple days ago about um, you know she was talking about um, feeling a failure mm. uh, in her personal life. You know she had she had just had kind of a like a, a a milestone life thing, and it was it was a sort of a bitter sweet thing. It was you know she had her divorce had been finalized, sure. and was kind of I was like, how do you feel about that? She's like, well, I know I made the right decision. I'm glad it's done, but I feel like a real failure. And I said, I was like, this is gonna sound like a pat answer, but it's really not. I said. We only learn from our failures. We don't learn from our successes. We celebrate in our successes, but we don't grow from them. You know, and but to get to that success, you had to go through ten to a hundred failures, and uh, putting in the work on canvas. Um, you know, sketching every day. Um, there's a lot of stuff that I'm not happy with, and I'm like, ugh. But it's, uh, it took me a while to realize it wasn't a waste of time because it's exercising those muscles. It's, it's getting up every day and going for a run and it getting a little bit easier each time. It's, you're growing stronger incrementally, and it's, it's sharpening your blade so that the next time it's a little bit easier or you're a little bit smarter about it. So, Yeah, it is tough. And, and honestly... Um... I used to do youth leadership um, training and um, through Rotary for a long time, um, and we'd have these sixteen-year-old boys and girls, yeah. young men, young women from throughout Maine and New Hampshire, and these were kids who had shown an aptitude and an interest in leadership. And you and I both know the kind of sixteen-year-old that has an interest and an aptitude in leadership, mm-hmm. and sometimes. They are humble, thoughtful, wonderful human beings, and sometimes they're a pain in the ass. Right. Speaking as someone who was in the latter category right. back in the day, I can tell you. And so we'd get them, and these oftentimes were people who had never failed, not substantially mm. in their lives, and had never had to deal with rejection or disappointment in any manifest fashion. And what we would do is we would manufacture failure. So they'd have the experience of, of not having something that they wanted go their way. Mm. And um, because if the first time that you ever encounter a roadblock or that you encounter uh, getting punched in the mouth is at your confirmation hearing for the Supreme Court of the United States, that's a failure of everybody else around you mm. and not yours. 
And we have a lot of people right now making decisions at the highest levels who have been groomed by a system that just keeps them on the, on the glide path. Mm -hmm. Um, politics is like, like show business. Uh, success gets you to the next success and failure gets you the door. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I mean that in the industry of it, not in the, the level, you know, not what you and I do. Mm -hmm. I don't do it so much anymore now, but, um, you know, art, yes, is failing and failing and failing until something works. Mm -hmm. um, I've known that writing and you've seen it painting. Like, that doesn't work. That, oh, okay, now like I'm finally right. getting somewhere with it. It's an incremental uh, iterate, iterative process. And politics should be iterative. Okay, it should be that same kind of, where we're working together, we're in these trenches and we're putting it together. This didn't work, that didn't work, let's try something else. But what ends up happening is we keep doing the stuff that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Okay, because either no one's telling them that, that, it, that it doesn't work or they're making money because it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. One of those two things is true. And um, I, I really think that um, we need more people pulling at an oar. We need more people. And again, I've seen over the last two years this groundswell of activism and engagement that I've never seen in my lifetime before. I suspect people who saw the 60s would recognize it. Um, and there is, there is absolutely this outpouring of questing. Mm -hmm. And it's, for some people it takes the form of this resistance, and for some people it takes the form of, of volunteering and working at nonprofits, and for some people it's being involved in the political process. And, and we're seeing a lot of different forms of it, but... I think people are realizing that if you, you can't just turn away from it. And if you do turn away from it, it goes bad. It goes sideways fast. Mm -hmm. I, I think 2016 was a wake-up call for a lot of people. That when you, If you say you don't care where we're all going to lunch and we go somewhere and you hate it, that's your fault. Right. That's a terrible analogy. No, it's, it's, but you get it. Well, no, because, you know, ever since... I was of voting age, I've always heard the old, uh, you know, uh, if you don't vote, you have no right to complain uh, if you're not part of the problem, or, you know, you know, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. But that really kind of puts it in terms that everyone can, because everyone's been in that position, and, you know, hey, where do you want to eat? Oh, I don't care. And then you go, oh, they don't have anything I like. That's why when I <laughs> proposition the question, you should have Put, you know, throwing your dad out. Now, you could have said, I want to eat here, and could have said, too bad, we're going here, And the, but at least... Everybody knows you're going to be unhappy, and we're ready for it. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, my, my wife and I have talked that, you know, we've been together for 15, 16 years now, and, you know, there's a, a joke that says the sum total of human existence is figuring out where to go eat, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's, a, that's a thing. And it took us a long time to get to the point of saying, like, here's what I want. We're, we're such polite creatures. It's true. We are. I think there's, there's, there's coarseness in our culture and everything else. But I think on an interpersonal level, especially with those we care about, we're, we're very polite. And we're polite to the point of failure. We're polite to the point where we don't always say the things that we need. And we right. don't always say the things that, that would work for us. And we tend to say, and honestly, I think this is true far more for women than for men, to go along, to get along, and 
just I don't want to rock the boat. I mm. just want to. I want everyone to be happy. I remember asking my mother when we were kids, "What do you want for your birthday?" I just want everyone to get along. That's not what she wanted for her birthday, but right. you know what I mean. Maybe it was. I don't know. But I, I think there is as as we try to solve problems, people need to stand up and say what they want. Yeah, and stop. Just say, well, I guess if everyone wants Italian, that's fine with me. Right. If it's not fine with you, we need to know that. Right. And I, I, I got to tell you, we can't hear that unless you show up at the meeting. Right. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? If, if you're sitting at home and you didn't pay, I didn't know there was a meeting. They decided that my taxes were going to go up and now I'm angry. Well, you weren't at the meeting. Yeah. Or you didn't vote in the municipal election when we had that Warren article on that was going to buy a new dump truck. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and so... The decisions are made by those who show up. It's trite, but it's true. Mm-hmm. And I think we've got a generation coming now of, you know, we always joke about, you know, the millennial snowflake and all this stuff. But I think we have a generation of people who are willing to say what they want. And also kind of push back and take action yeah. against the stuff they don't want. Yes. Yeah, they're, uh, I would say... People in their twenties and and early thirties are far more um, politically active than our generation ever was at that age. Yeah, I mean, we came, we were the, the dying throes of the nineteen eighties, yeah. right? And and not to get too sort of um, armchair sociologist about this stuff, but like, I I think that we were the last gasp of the young should kind of shut their mouth and sit in the corner. Mm. And I remember pushing back hard against it when I was a kid and um, having to fight my way into the room. It took me four years at the University of New Hampshire um, of being involved in student government. And by the time I was a senior, I was in the, re- in the room and I was at the table and at meetings where we were making decisions at the highest level at the university. Uh, and being taken seriously, but I had to be there for four years. I'd outlast some of the administrators that had been there. Mm. It helped that I had lost my hair. You know what I mean? I looked like I belonged. But um, <laughs> I, we have, I think, now, and none of this is to denigrate. There have been activists and passionate people who I know who are in their forties and fifties who have been putting a shovel in the ground for a very long time. Mm. And so this is not; these are sweeping generalizations, of course. Um, we have, I think, a willingness to wear the heart on the sleeve. We have a willingness to uh, publicly put a stake in the ground and say, this is what I believe. The name of your podcast, right? I mean, this is my truth. Tell me yours. Mm-hmm. People are telling theirs yeah. in a way that I don't think they have historically. And again, I go back to it again. I think especially women are being... Are, are, are starting to tell their stories. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's one part of this, you know, the, the Me Too movement and the stuff around Brett Kavanaugh and, and, and uh, you know, assault survivors and this other thing. saying like, no, this is my, this is my story and it matters. Yeah. Okay. And it informs who I am and my intersection with the world. And, you know, I got to tell you, I mean, part of, of my experience was, my wife just finished eight years in the army um, and she did a deployment to Afghanistan. And when she did, I quit my job and I stayed home with our boys. Mm. And during that time, it was fascinating. The number of people who would come up to me, men and women, isn't it wonderful that you have this opportunity to spend this time with your children? 
And I say, like, I'm what? Uh, I'm sort of vacationing or like I'm this, right. I'm, I'm a, you know, voyeuristically parenting or something. It's like what happens to dads. You take your kids to the grocery store and some old lady in the checkout line says, oh, are you babysitting today? Right. These are my kids. Right. You know, I'm not, I don't right. babysit my own. These are my parenting here, right. you know? And, um, although my favorite was the little old lady who I was having, my kids were melting. They were tiny. And she said, uh, oh, sweetheart, you know, just blink your eyes and it'll be over. And I just started like furiously blinking as fast as I could. And I said, it's not working. You know? But um, this, there was this perception that um, I, was, I was doing something special. I was doing something um, like a favor to the world or a favor to my wife. Or mm-hmm. I, I don't know, it's hard to describe. And all I was doing was nothing that women have not done for a very long time. Right. And nobody's offering them a medal. Nobody's right. offering them a pat on the back. Okay. Um, when I go out and talk to people and they say, and they say, what do you do? And I say, I take things out of the washing machine. I put them in the dryer. You know, I've gotten pretty good at it, mm. uh, as a, as a full-time parent. And they're like, oh, that's awesome. Like, when's the last time, like when a woman tries to get back in the workforce after her kids, she's been home with the kids and goes into an interview and that interviewer says, what have you been doing for the last 10 years? And she says, well, I've been home with the kids. That's awesome. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's not what they hear. They say, oh, well, you're probably out of step with the work. You know I mean? They hear a different story. Right. Okay. And um, I also will say that I, during that experience, and this was a six-month experience of being home with my, with my kids while Sarah was overseas. And I, I do not know how single parents do it. Yeah. I do not know. Especially the single mother. I don't, and they don't, I had a light at the end of the tunnel. I knew that, you know, it was a six month time horizon. Right. I, I have no idea how these moms, by and large, there are guys who do it, these moms work in two and three jobs, other people, you know, and, and they're being there to do homework with their kids and making the soccer. I don't know how. I don't know how. Knowing that it's a 15 or 20 years until this thing is, right. is run its course. Right. And they're not doing anything for themselves. They're not able to finish school. They're not able to, you know what I mean? They don't get a moment to sit down. And so that's another thing that I talk about, the things that have led me to the the public arena. And it started as broadly wanting to make things better. Over the course of your life, you realize that that doesn't just mean rainbows and butterflies. Okay, we're talking about the fact that here in New Hampshire, just recently, a couple of months ago, there was a paid family leave bill that made its way to the governor's desk. It had been approved by the legislature. And it was a state insurance program where you could, if you had a sick parent or a sick child or a sick spouse and you needed to be home, you could do that and not lose your job and not lose your pay because of it. Mm-hmm. Okay? And we have a governor who's, who vetoed it and then said it was a vacation. Hmm. Okay, And anybody that's ever had to tend to an ailing parent or have a sick kid at home who didn't have the means to pay somebody else to take care of it mm-hmm. knows it's about being with the people who love you the most when they need you the most. Mm-hmm. And to call that a vacation to me is just beyond out of touch with, with how most people lead their lives. Right. And so having been in the position of being the primary parent and primary caregiver, I'm, 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 you know, I was the one who was going to the, appointments and all this stuff right and and it's 
we have very, very different experiences going on for people right now in this country and in this yeah. state. That winter circle again. If you're in it, man, things are good. Man, things are great. Mm-hmm. If you're outside of it, it's still great a lot of the time. But it's that hair's breadth away from being not so great. All you need is somebody to get sick or someone to lose a job or have a fire or something, right? I mean, you know, most people are just a couple of paychecks away from being homeless. Mm-hmm. That's not a reality that a lot of people making the decisions are conversant with. Mm-hmm. So we have this, this gap in perception and reality between the people making the laws and the people that are experiencing life that, man, it could be easier. We could make it easier for people. And we're not talking now about handouts. We're not talking about everybody gets a pony. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay. Right. I think a lot of times Democrats get whacked with like, oh, you just want to give away. And you go, I don't want to give anything away. Right. But if you're working hard and you're working for a living, you have dirt under your fingernails and you stink at the end of the day because you've been humping it. You know what? You should be able to feed your kids and you should be able to send them to school with a clean shirt and everything. You know what I mean? Like right. work should have its reward. Mm. Work should matter as much as well. And the fact of the matter is we have a system that rewards wealth and punishes work. Mm. And that to me is wrong. And that paid family medical leave is one example of something that wealth doesn't understand. Right. When you can hire somebody to take your mom to the, to the doctor or you can, you know, you're not afraid to lose your job because you're taking your wife, you know, for her, for her MRI scan. And you're terrified that she's got breast cancer or you're terrified that your kid is sick and you're, you're worrying about losing your, your job. Yeah. That's a reality that does not compute to, to our wealthiest. And, and, you know, honestly, like, look, there are very wealthy people who are phenomenal human beings. That's, I'm, I, it sounds like I'm saying these are bad people. I'm saying as a governing class, we have a disconnect sure. um, from the reality that a lot of people face. I just talked for a long time, and you're probably ready to nod off in the other chair. No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> just fired up there for a minute. No, I mean, I think it's all. Uh, I, you know, I, I think it's important to, to hear this from, you know, not only someone running for local office, but someone that I know who, like I, I you, you've always been a passionate person, and uh, a big thing for me that I've always been drawn to is people's passions, whatever it is. And uh, I've been turned on to so many different things, be it film, be it books, be it music, be it politics by someone who is passionate about, like passion is infectious. Hmm. And I think that's important. I mean, you know, it's, I ask people all the time, and I, I, one of my oldest tattoos is on my left wrist here, and it says, who inspires you? Mm-hmm. Um, and now, you know, going back to, we were talking about what I was doing last night. I was down in Boston. Um, that's actually a lyric from a song from my friend Adam's, uh, one of his bands. But, um, you know, someone asked me this morning, they're like, I saw that you posted these pictures. You know, why did you? you know, why'd you go down? I was like, well, besides the fact that I have an unhealthy obsession with music, I was like, these are people that inspire me. And that's, you know, not, you know, being a, being a musician is like very low on my list of things that I dabble in creatively, but it helps revitalize my, Mm -hmm. my, my own passions, uh, you know, being around people who are passionate and, uh, 
you know, getting the job done, whatever it is. So, you know, I, it, I think it's important for, I know it's important for me to listen to other people talk about what they're passionate about, um, re- regardless of what it sure. is. So, yeah. Well, then you're doing that. I mean, I, I think it's cool. I've listened to a number of your, your episodes and I always find it interesting because I think that we have, we sometimes feel like, oh, I'm not creative or I am creative, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's this binary right. setup where everybody is creative. Everybody draws when they're a kid. At some point, like we, we, we talked about yeah, that. We talked like about it. Yeah. Somebody said, you're no good yeah. or this stinks. Yeah. And you go, oh, maybe I can't draw. Right. And you stop and you start going to do other things. Um, and I can tell you for a fact that everybody draws because I've been in enough meetings. Yeah. And I've seen the doodles on the notepads. Everybody draws, okay? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And everybody writes. Mm-hmm. And um, it's and everybody dreams. Mm-hmm. Uh, at some point, we we told our kids to to stop dreaming and to live in the real world. And um, you know, it's a, it's an oft quoted line from one of my personal. You talk about who inspires you. Mm-hmm. I mean, Robert Kennedy was one of you know. I obviously never was killed before I was born. Right. But in my reading of, of history, um, he's somebody that I'm, I'm, I've always been very interested in. And, and, you know, he very famously said that, you know, most men look at the world that is and ask why, and I dream of the world that could be and ask why not. Mm. And there is to, to, I guess, get back to that theme of creativity is there's so much that's possible. Mm. There really is. I love New Hampshire so much. It's why I came back. Every day that I was gone was a dagger in my side. I and people who know me know that. And um, we had this eight-year exile while Sarah did her military service, which I would never, ever, ever do anything to take away. It was phenomenal. Like mm-hmm. she was, my wife's the best human being I know. And but to be able to get back here, and to now be in a position to be able to say, you know what, the state I love and the people that I love that comprise it we ha- we could do so much better. Mm. We could create an ecosystem. We could create a place where it's the best place in the country to raise your kids, to find a good job, to you know have health care, to, to go to college, to, to have safe workplaces and retire with dignity. That we can we can have that here. We can be an absolute beacon to the rest of the country on how to have a state that works for everybody. Yeah. And not just for a few. And I don't see that as an abstract and I don't see it as pie in the sky and I don't see it as unachievable. I see it as something that if we work together, we can actually make lives better for other people. And I can't imagine a better way to spend our time on earth than doing that. Mm -hmm. And you know what? You do it too. Every time that you produce a piece of artwork that someone enjoys, their life is better because Mm -hmm. of it. And you know, it's a day well spent. And um, I just, I, I wish people dreamed more. I wish people gave voice and, uh, you know, full value to their dreams more. Well, that's like, I was just, as you were talking, I was just thinking about that. Because I, I think people still dream, but it's the, it's the follow through with your dream that is what so many of us give up on. Uh, because we're told, well, it's just a dream. It's never going to happen. Well, it's certainly not going to happen if you don't try, if you don't put in the work. That's the the thing that it doesn't, I don't want to say it irritates me because that's the wrong word, but, you know, 
when I post art, a lot of times I'll see people in the real world and they're like, I love seeing your art. You're so gifted. And to me, um, and I know it's, it's, yeah. you know, I, it's supposed I, to be a compliment. It, it's yeah, supposed right. to be a compliment right. and, and I appreciate it. But at the same time, I'm like, I, I've drawn since I was a kid and it's, I've, I've really only felt quasi comfortable calling myself an artist in the last three years. And it's not because I just all of a sudden discovered a gift. I, I've been working my ass off making art um, almost every day for the last three years and working those muscles and whatnot. And I'm like, it's it's not a gift. I mean, having the, the passion for art, you know, was something that I've had since I, I was a child. So maybe I've looked that as a gift, but... Uh, I, I, I've worked hard at it. I'm just like, it's not something that I just snap my fingers yeah. and it's done. I'm like, yeah. you know, and it's, it, 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 but I think anything that's, you know, of, of great value, somebody has worked for it. Yeah. Uh, somebody's worked hard for it, you know, and you may not see the work, you just see the end result. But yeah, and it's, that's the thing when someone has a dream, like to make that dream a reality. You have to work at it. So, yeah. well, it's like anything. You watch uh, professional dancers, or mm-hmm. you watch um, athletes who play, you know, uh, in the NBA or something like that. And oh, they're so God. They're just it's this God-given talent. Well, okay, I'll see that. Like there, maybe there's some of that too. But what you don't see is the hours in the gym. You don't see the hours in class. You don't see the hours, you know, working out all the other stuff that goes into it. And um, success is when passion meets work. Mm. And, um, you know, I think that's absolutely true. And I also think that opportunity is the single most important thing in the world. Mm. And, you know, you have been able to carve out, and I've always, I think I've told you this before, I've always been impressed with your courage in carving mm. out the life that, that you want for yourself. Yeah. That may or may not resemble what people go like, oh, this is what success looks like. Right. Okay. It's like, no, no, no. This is like, you know, you're like, I want to, I want to paint. I want to create art. I want to listen to music. I want to enjoy my friends. Like that's what my life, right. you know, that's the life I want. And it may not look like what somebody else's life looks like. Okay. Mm. And I've always had a lot of um, respect for people who say, I want to start my own business. I'm leaving the, the nine to five and I'm, the amount of courage it takes sure. to do that. Or like when you said, you know what, I'm selling the, the I'm getting out of my lease. I'm, I'm jumping in a car. I'm going to spend the next, you know, five weeks on the road or whatever it was you right. did, you know, three months. I don't remember how long it was. 38 days. 38 <laughs> days. I know them all. And, you know, there's so much fear of failure right. in the world. There's so much, and we talked about failure earlier, but there's so much, it says, oh, it's going to look, people are going to think I'm different or, you know, whatever else. Or, I think there's a lot also of structural inhibition that uh, that exists, and we talked briefly about healthcare. Uh, by having healthcare tied to work, it makes it harder for people to seek out the life that they might want. Sure. They may have a great idea for a business. They may be wanting to go and become a, a professional artist or comedian or something else, and oh, but I won't have like my healthcare won't be there. Mm. If I quit my job, that's the only way that I could get in to see the doctor. And maybe they have a condition that they need to go and see the doctor and have, um, you know, uh, cheaper, uh, medication. So, um, 
I think having the kind of healthcare system we have is a real drag on innovation and entrepreneurship and, and creativity in our society because mm. of that. Um, and uh, so we make it, so you have to be even more brave on top of telling your family that you're going to go, you know what I mean? You tell right. mom and dad, you know, I'm leaving college because I'm going to go and, and, and start this computer company or whatever. Right. Oh, you know, they'll look at you funny at Thanksgiving. Um, and it's, uh, that's not how other cultures do it. Mm. You know, you go and just about anywhere else in the world, that's not how it's set up. If you had a blank sheet of paper, it's not how you, like so many other things, it's kind of, if you had a blank sheet of paper, it's not how you design it. Right. Uh, our healthcare system is an accident. Mm. Um, and, uh, but there's too many people making too much money for us to want to summon the political world to change it. But I, uh, you know, I, what I love so much about the last conversation we had in this one is, um, for as long as we've known, we're just, we're very different breeds of cat. Right. Um, and I learn every time I talk to you and interact with you. I, I, um, and vice versa. Yeah. It's, it's, but that's what makes a great conversation. Right. And, and um, for all the crap social media gets, I love the fact that Facebook and Twitter and Instagram help me to reconnect and stay connected with people sure. like you. Okay. Who don't live next door. Don't work with me. Years ago, in the late 90s, Robert Putnam was a sociologist who wrote a book called Bowling Alone, and it was about the decline of social capital in America. And it said that part of the reason that polarization was on the rise was because we don't know our neighbors anymore, that we work hard, we go home, we watch TV. We don't, we're not part of the bowling league. If we go bowling, it's just we go by ourselves. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so the name of the book was Bowling Alone. And it said that that had broken down the social capital of the Rotary meetings or the Lions Club or the, the Quilting Bee and all the stuff where we used to get to know our neighbors. Right. So that if somebody was hurting, we knew it and we could lend a hand or we were less likely to get in big public fights because it was more like an extended family. Right. And I remember pushing back a little bit on that once we got into 05, 06, 07 and starting to think like social media is the, it's the recreation of our villages but we just do it in a digital way because, you know, we grow up and we move away for school or for work and we're in different places, but we're still able to keep our tribes intact. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And for all the, the negative connotations of tribalism and what it's done in our politics, the ability on social media to forge meaningful connections with other people. I see your art every day. Yeah. It makes yeah. me smile every single time. Yeah. Even though I don't love it all. Right. There's some stuff that's not my cup of tea. But there's stuff that I adore. Yeah. And um, if I were you, I'd love that. I mean, you know, if you're doing something everyone loves, it must be not Victor. I mean, you're a music right. guy, and the music you listen to isn't the music I listen sure. to. Sure. And you probably will laugh like at the music Joel. that I would listen to. But, <laughs> you know, um, I remember all my friends who worked at WUNH in college, and if it had, if a, a track had been heard by more than eight people, it couldn't possibly sure. be good. Sure. Uh, but that capacity we have to connect and to exchange information is a, and to build relationships across time and space it's unbelievable yeah well going back to the the trip i took last fall um a lot of the people that i saw on that trip i mean i'm trying to think you might be the person that i had known the longest that i stayed with on that trip Tempted. I'll have to fact. I was going to say you'd have to, and, 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 and I'll and I'll, I'll I'll look into it, and then when I do the intro to this, I'll be like, yes, I was correct, or no, I actually, but certainly one of the people I've known the longest. But there were a lot of people that I stayed with 
I hadn't physically seen in 10 years. Yeah. Um, but because of social media, we've uh, stayed in touch. You know, I have uh, a friend, Erin uh, Kitteridge. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you remember Australia? her. She lives in Australia. I remember and, her from school, yeah. um, You know, and, and we were close friends in high school, but it was, you know, when we graduated, uh, social media was not a thing anymore. And it's, you know, well, maybe at the 10 or the 20-year reunion, you'll see these people. But other than that, it was... Well, once you move on in your life, you're not going to see these people anymore. And this is someone who uh, it's been it's been great as adults. We've mm-hmm. reconnected, and, you know. I've done some art for her and vice versa. And you know, we had a you know we had a, a friend in common who unfortunately passed last year. And she it, it was actually yeah. it, it was a it was an accident, but it was in a time of uh, you know she accidentally. Uh, uh, FaceTime to me. She just meant to send me a, send me a text, but so it was around two in the morning my time. So whatever, it, it was probably noon her time yeah, or something like that. Um, never would have been able to do that, or you know, just having a phone call to Australia fifteen years ago would have right. cost me an arm and a leg. And this was just like because it was through social media, didn't cost me a thing. And um, yeah, been able to either strengthen or reconnect uh relationships so the the flip side to that is that troubles me is when people are awful to each other online particularly people that know each other in right the analog world as well uh and then people always throw off the whole don't take it so seriously it's just facebook and i'm like that excuse sort of washed 10 years ago. Now, it's a very real, very tangible way many of us interact. It might not be the only way we interact, but it's the way that we interact. And you can write it off as, this is, this is, this is my online persona. It's no, it's believable. you. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, you yeah. know, if you're a digital a-hole, you're an a-hole. <laughs> like, right. you know, don't, I'm just like, don't, whether it's a stranger or someone you've known for 30 years, don't say stuff to someone online that you wouldn't say to their face. Right. So, but I mean, and, and you know, I'm certainly guilty of it as well. Cause it's one of those things that, Oh, well it doesn't matter. I'm not going to, I, you know, no I'm matter what this it, person, it's no not a real person. Yeah. It's just, it's just a thumbnail with words to the right of it mm-hmm. that I don't agree with. It's fascinating. You know, the difference too, like with Facebook, like, they're all, I think, real people mm-hmm. on Twitter. Mm-hmm. You've got these, you know, maybe it's a series of numbers or something like that, right. right, whatever it is. And once in a while, I'll, I'll put things up for the campaign on Twitter and there'll be like a bot response or something. And I never, I, I have a rule. I never respond to anything if it's not a real person's name. Right. You know what I mean? If it's under the header of, you know, like. Um, greenhead fly lady or I don't even know right. like something I'm like yeah, I don't yeah. I, if, I had the same policy when I was on the board here an anonymous letter to the editor I can't spend time with that like, I don't you know what I mean right. it, it's yeah. tell me who you are and I'll have a conversation right. with you and we'll, I'll hear what you have to say you know what I mean but, if you're going to stand up and um, voice your opinion at least have the conviction to say it's yeah, your opinion yeah I mean and I understand there are some circumstances where that may not always be safe. I get that, but I'm saying, you know, in this environment, mm-hmm. um, if you're going to be on, these are never positive comments from these anonymous right. Twitter 
they, they're just always nasty and it's like, come on. And, and I, I believe that there was an effort that there were these Russian bots, their desires to just coarsen the dialogue and make mm-hmm. us more resentful of each other and distrustful of each other. Yeah. Uh, that's why I actually like, I like Facebook because uh, Twitter is like a loud bar. Whereas Facebook is more like a coffee house. I don't know. Yeah. That's probably wrong. I don't know. I, don't know. I my my interaction on Twitter is very limited. Which <laughs> it's funny because the producer of uh, all three podcasts that I do, uh, particularly the 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 Real Fake News podcast, which is a, a comedy one, he's like, "You guys got to amp up your Twitter yeah. presence." And uh, thankfully, mercifully, I have very little experience on Twitter, and it's just. It's not something that engages me. Right. Um, you know, I love Instagram. I love Facebook. I mean, Instagram, it's, it's all pictures. And, you know, I'm a very visual person. But, uh, yeah, I think I maybe have 10 followers on Twitter. Because I post so rarely. And it's yeah. usually reposting something that I've posted on Instagram and Facebook. It's usually art. And stuff. My biggest problem with Twitter is uh, character limitations. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I work in the novel form, man. I don't work in flat in flash fiction. Right, right. <laughs> so to constrain me to you know however many characters it is is not my yeah. highest and best use. Yeah, uh, or certainly a, an ability that I have. But I do. I you know, and again, I, I look at the end of the day, it is just a tool. It's like anything else. Yeah, it's it can be used for good or for evil. Right, right, and like fire or the wheel or whatever, gunpowder, whatever there's, there's right. pro-social and anti-social uses for it. But I do think that what we're seeing and part of why we're seeing such an engaged generation coming is they have a native um, uh, familiarity with this technology mm-hmm. and comfort level with it. Whereas we even still are sometimes like, what's going to want if I push this button, what's going to happen? Right. Or they just, this is it. This is, they're, they're natives to this stuff. Right. And, they know how to use it to organize. They know how to use it to find other people that agree with them yeah. and then mobilize that. Uh, and so I think some of this rise in activism you're seeing is because of the tools that are available. Some of these younger kids that I keep calling them kids, they're like 22, 23 years old. Yeah, to me at this point, anyone that's basically younger, 30, than, younger than 35 is a kid to me. <laughs> but these, these um, young men and women, political operatives that I work with, they are like lightning, like they whip out their phone and six different things happen. And I feel like I've got like Chekhov with me. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, um, you know, like, what are you doing? Okay. I trust you that you've got it squared away. Right. You know I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, no. And I'm increasingly my, my, my manager who's 25. She's like, yeah, don't do that. I'll, I'll take care of that. Yeah, yeah. Cause I can do it in a quarter of the time it'll right. take you. Right. And, um, but it's, um, times are changing, man. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, I, I still think I, I get up every day and I still believe that our best days are ahead of us. I believe that there is so much awesome stuff coming. I think, I know I'm not going to sit here and tell the singularity and we'll all be one with the machine. Like that's not what I'm talking about. I think that everywhere I go and throughout this district and this process, and I have 32 towns and they're all very different. I go to a mall and I've met thousands of people on this and you know what people say my mom is sick and I want to make sure that I can get her medication mm-hmm. and I work in extra jobs that I can pay for pay for her pills or I lost you know I have a friend of mine running for state senate that talks about how he met someone who lost both of their adult sons to heroin and they just want to do everything they can so that other families don't have that experience sure. you know what I mean just like every time I've met somebody who's encountered tragedy almost 
without fail, I, I wish it could be different for other people. They don't, they're not bitter and regretful about their own experiences. Right. They worry about other people. Mm-hmm. We have such a boundless capacity for generosity and for compassion as a people. Mm-hmm. If we can tap into that instead of our fears and our angers, mm-hmm. because we have leadership and I think that people are tired of it. People are tired of being told who to hate and who to fear and who to blame. And what we want is how can I help? Mm-hmm. Okay. And how can I be part of the answer? And How can we all get there together? Because, you know, we're we're one people, man. We're, America is not a place; it's an idea, and, it, and the idea is you can take out of many, you can build one. You, mm. I, I think I've heard that somewhere. Yeah, right. Yeah. I think there's a Latin phrase, I think that, so. right? That yeah. goes along with that. And long before we had in God, we trust. It was e pluribus unum, mm. right? Which meant out of many, one. Yeah, and. We're a pluralistic society. We're a bewildering array of political opinions and faiths and creeds and races and gender identities and national origins and everything else. But that's the freaking idea, man. Right. The idea is that we're all over the map. We're a Star Trek bridge crew, man. We got all kinds of colors and races and everything else. And but we are in this thing together. Mm. And I, I'm desperate for, and I know other people that I've met are desperate for political leadership that acknowledges that and encourages that instead of preying on artificial divides between us for the 1% electoral. And I think that makes people want to throw up in their glass, Mm. you know? And so every time I have a meeting and somebody says like, Oh, here's a great potential wedge issue. Don't give, don't bring me wedge issues. Like let's talk about how we can get everybody across the finish line here. Uh, And I know we've, we've run long, but I, I will, uh, I hope it's a long time from now, but someday when all is said and done and I've had my career and I go to my grave, I want my kids and my grandkids to look back and say, boy, my dad, my granddad, he wanted us to go to work for each other. Mm-hmm. And he wanted us to, to help each other out and to reach a hand out and to, and, and to be in this thing. And he never... Never wanted to profit from the pain of others, mm-hmm. and just that that open heart and the open mind and the open hand. And if we can do that, it's in us. Yeah. We've done it before. We just got to get back to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, going back to your uh, point about you know Robert Kennedy um, being gone before we were even born, but still being an inspiration for you, uh, the people who throughout history stand the test of time as pillars of humankind are the people that have, I mean, you know, you, you got your Adolf Hitler and your Genghis Khan notwithstanding. Right, 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 we right, remember right. the people that brought about positive change. You know, those are the people that continue to inspire who have a legacy beyond their own lifespan. So, yeah. I think it's frost. I, I will come this way, but once. Yeah. And whatever help I can offer, whatever aid I can prefer, right? Yeah. I mean, it, if your legacy that you leave behind is one of hate and distrust and greed, um, I, that's between you and your maker. I can't, I, right. I can't speak to that. But um, I have an eight and a ten year old who I tuck in every night, whether they're awake or asleep, whether it's right. seven o'clock or ten o'clock when I get back in the door, and I look at them and I remember them being this being 
a year old. I remember before they were ever even an idea. And I think they're going to be here long after you and I are, yeah. you know, checked out. God, I hope long yeah. after you and I check out. And I want them to see the world with hope. And I want them to see the world with compassion. And I want to see them with a world of possibility. And not one that isn't great anymore. Mm-hmm. And not one that needs to go backwards in order to feel great again. I want them to know that whoever they love and whatever they do, this is going to be a world of possibility for them. Mm. And you know what? For all their friends and everybody else. And that if we can do that, if we can, if we can bend ourselves to that effort of a world that's inclusive and a world that, you know, just, if you work hard, man, you can do it. Mm. You don't have to, it, it, Success doesn't depend on your tax bracket or your zip code or your skin color or or sexual orientation or any of these other things that are used to to hold people down. Every single kid should be able to get up and feel that the sky is the limit. Mm. And that doesn't require us to quadruple people's taxes. It doesn't require that we... Um, you know, rewrite every law in the country. It it means that we have to go to work, especially those of us in the public place, have to go to work thinking, how do I make it better today? Mm. And not, how do I pay off my campaign contributors or how do I uh, line my own pockets or, or how do I forward my own career? But how do I serve the people that sent me here? Mm. And if we can do that, I'm telling you, we can follow through on the promise of making it better for following generations than the ones that went before. And I think that's a, a, I think that's a solemn obligation of every generation. And we've had some, some scuffles, I think, around that sure. lately. And, but I, I do believe, I, I, I say it and it sounds uh, naive, but I, I, I think it's possible. I think it is. I think that it's just a matter of wanting it bad enough and believing in it hard enough and being willing to put the work in. Yeah. I don't think it sounds naive at all. I think people who don't want to put the work in dismiss it as naive because it's easier to say it's naive that that's not something that is worth striving towards because you have to put in work. Yeah to make stuff better. Um, yeah. But there's, you know, and it's going back to dreaming and following through with your dream. You know, that's, you know. You know, it's it's funny. It's hilarious. I mean, like we've mentioned several times, we've known each other for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, I, I am I am no different than anybody else. I am no more. And you know, when people say, you all, you look at your, look at your work, you're so talented. And you go, mm-hmm. well, yeah, thank you, but, it's it's the work and it's you know what I mean and everything else. I make no claims to be any better than anybody else that's out there. Right. And do not hit your wagon to me. Don't believe in me. I am not. I, I hate cult of personality. I don't believe in them. I, I I don't believe in saviors or any of that stuff. Believe in you. Believe in what you can do. Right. And if you do that and you do that and you do that and you do that, then we'll get there. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's the old joke says don't let, don't worry about the horse being blind. Just load the wagon. Yeah. Okay. Stop worrying so much about having some fearless leader and just go put the shovel in the ground. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And 
and and that's how we're gonna. That's where any any good thing that's ever happened in my life has been because lots of people were involved in it, mm. except for my kids. Right. <laughs> that was mostly us. Just, just kind yeah, of a duo of things. Yeah, that was just that was, you know, that was a that's right. That was a those were wonderful duets. <laughs> uh, but even then. People say, oh, you've got wonderful kids. You must be a great parent. So I'm like, yeah, and you know what? They've had lots of great teachers, and they've got great grandparents, and they've had great friends and coaches and everything. Right. You know what I mean? Like, and, and people lampooned it when, you know, partially because of who said it, but that it takes a village. It, you know, I trust every day I send my kids out into the world that there are people out there that are going to take care of them. Yeah. You know, I mean, I remember the very first day when he was um, six months old that I dropped Bobby, my oldest, off at daycare. Because his mom was going back to work, and I had to drop him off at daycare. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't leave the room. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I didn't know these people that he was with, and I walked out. And I, I wept in my car like a stupid, you know, infant myself right. for for about an hour. And I called my mom, and she couldn't understand me because I'm, you know, I'm thirty, whatever I was. Yeah, you know, I was younger You're than younger. I am now, yeah. and I'm and I'm I'm bawling like a child on the yeah. phone, and I'm thinking to myself like, what is this? And it's because you know we 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 carve out these little pieces of ourselves. And we send them out in the world and they keep growing and changing and we can't control it and everything else. But we have to trust that the world is going to take care of them. Mm -hmm. And we trust in other people to look out for them and to teach them and to encourage them. And, and I just, I'm so thankful for everybody that's done that. And, and I remember too, I've coached and I've taught and I've, I've done those sorts of, that sort of work. And I've worked with kids with, struggles with learning differences i've worked with kids who have physical disabilities and yeah. I, i've done that kind of work and the parents you know who are fierce advocates for their kids also no one is ever more thankful and saying like god you know you, you treat my kid with respect and you treat my kid with equality you know treat them like they're different and you help make a, a life possible for them and I, I i never stop believing that all of our kids can make it and all of our kids are precious and wonderful and great. And, and, I, and that's why I tuck these kids in, my guys, my boys, every night I tuck them in and I look at them and I said, I'm trying. Mm -hmm. I look at them and I said, I'm trying. My kids have everything they could ever want. You know, we do okay and they're, they're always warm and they're always full and they're always happy. Well, they're not always happy. But, and all I can think of is that there's parents out there that either don't get to tuck their kids in or they tuck them in and they say, I'm trying, but I'm not getting it done. And they, yeah. and, and, they can't provide for their kids the way that they want to, or they, you know what I mean? Or, or they're struggling or their kids are in trouble. And, and it's, um, we can do so much more. And, it, and it's not a question of throwing tax money at it. We can, we can do it. We just have to enforce the values that we share. Yeah. And we have to demand that our leadership is in service to us and to our values. Yeah. And, and if we do that, then we have, just, I mean, I think we're at a point in time. We're at a point in time right now where we're looking at our country and we're looking at our state and we're saying, is it slipping away? Are we losing what makes us so special? Mm -hmm. And all the years I used to coach, um, I was always happiest if it was late in the game and we were down a little bit, but there was time left on the clock. Mm. And we're in a tight spot right now. I don't think there's any question about it. There's a lot uh, rigged against us, right? But there's time left on the clock. Mm -hmm. There's something we can do about it. And it's up to everybody to determine what that is. Yeah. Not everybody's going to fight back the same way. Yeah. Some people will march and some people will write letters and some people will raise money and some people will run for office. But God, do something. Yeah. You know, put an oar in the water. Yeah. Because we need you. Yeah. Well, that's a, 
that's a pretty good point to uh, <laughs> to stop. I will say, as far as doing something, when's when's the day that people need to get out and vote? November sixth is okay. election day here in New Hampshire. All right, and you know, honestly, and I mean this. Only come and vote if you're going to vote for me. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. Because they always say, oh, just come out and vote. Yeah. It's important. It is. It's important that you vote. And even if you're going to vote for other guys, come and do it and be heard and be part of the process. Yeah. Absolutely. November 6th here in New Hampshire, actually all across the country, November 6th, yeah. midterm elections. And to your earlier point, there are people who say, oh, it's just a midterm. No, come. It's important. It's, yeah. it's just as important as the, as the presidential elections, if not more so. Yeah. Awesome. Beautiful. Scott, thank you. Thank you again, sir. All right.